Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 3. Chapter 3 begins a new section in the book of Job, and it introduces new themes and emphases that we need to be aware of. Tremper Longman III says helpfully here, No longer is the focus on Job's motivation for relationship with God, but now the book will explore the vexing question of undeserved suffering. As it does so, the even more important question of the source of wisdom will come to the fore, closed quote. Now, as we get into this section of speeches, it'd be helpful for us to remember the key given to all of it as provided by John Calvin. Calvin said, We have also to note that in the whole dispute, that is the whole dialogue, Job maintains a good case, and his adversary maintains a poor one. Now, there is more, that Job, maintaining a good case, pleads it poorly, and the others bringing a poor case pleaded well. When we shall have understood this, it will be to us, as it were, a key to open to us the whole book. Closed quote. Calvin then goes on to explain how or in what sense Job makes a good case poorly. This is also important for us to understand. He says, he knows that God does not always afflict men according to the measure of their sins, but that he has his secret judgments of which he does not give us an account. And yet we must wait until he may reveal to us why he does this or that. This is a case which is good and true, though it is poorly pleaded for Job here now throws himself off balance and uses excessive and exaggerated propositions so that he shows that he is desperate in many respects, closed quote. So in street-level English, what Calvin is saying is that Job is right in the sum and substance of what he says. But he is so wounded, he's, he's so off balance, he, he's like a badly burned and beaten animal. And as we would expect, sometimes the things coming out of his mouth lack rationality, balance, and moderation. Now, we aren't judging Job by noticing that. Job will notice that, and, and Job will say that about himself in chapter 6. But it's just important for us to understand that. Job is saying true things here. But with all the exaggeration, confusion, and occasional irrationality you would expect from a deeply wounded man. With all that being said, hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Now let's just pause here and notice a few things. Let's notice first of all that it was Job and not his friends who broke the silence. Sometimes we're a little too hard on Job's friends. We criticize them for speaking when they ought to have been sitting silently. But they were sitting silently. They sit silently with Job for seven days. 
And they only start talking when Job starts talking. They let him decide when the conversation will start. They were going to sit with him and wait with him until he felt like talking. And then all they could do was speak out of what they knew. And, and, and that's one of the lessons of the book. In fact, I think you could say that's actually two of the lessons of the book. One is about how to care for hurting people. Sit with them, weep with them, and let them decide when it's time to start talking it out. And then the second lesson there, I think, is that we will always minister out of our theology. Even if we don't think we have a theology, we will speak to people on the basis of what we believe about God, what we believe about us, about humanity, and what we believe about how salvation works out in this very broken world. We will minister out of our theology. And that's what Job's friends do. And they hurt Job because their theology is ultimately inadequate. That's the lesson. Bad theology leads to bad personal and pastoral care. What you believe matters. What you know matters. What you don't know matters. And and if you persist in bad theology, it will make you a bad friend. I think that's a very important takeaway. So Job decides here that it's time to talk. In this first speech, he isn't really talking to his friends and he isn't really talking to God. He is just opening his mouth and letting out pain. Now, he's being very careful here not to cross the line. He does not curse God. The narrator wants us to see that, but he does curse the day of his birth. He basically says in this first speech, I wish that I had never been born. You can hear that now in verse two. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Now, no one is really sure what Job means here with this reference to Leviathan. I, I may have mentioned that the Hebrew in Job is very old, and it is generally considered the hardest book of the Old Testament to translate. So it could be simply that we are missing something here, or it could just be that what Job says here doesn't really make any sense. As I said, Job is trying very hard not to cross the line. He does not want to curse God, but he is angry and upset and hurt. So it may simply be that he is uttering gibberish here, sort of like the dad who steps on a piece of Lego and starts inventing creative swear words on the spot because his kids are in the room. Son of a left-footed fireman from Mexico. Wow. That doesn't make any sense, but I'm not sure that we expect a man in this condition to be making a lot of sense. Now, maybe, maybe it has something to do with summoning the waters of a flood to overwhelm the day of his birth. That's one guess, and I suppose it's as good as any. Leviathan was generally associated with the waters of chaos, 
So maybe that's what Job is saying. I wish a giant flood would swallow up the day of my birth and remove it entirely from the annals of history. It could be that. Or it could be angry, irrational, blithering, sad nonsense. We aren't sure. And Job's not done. In verse 9, he says, Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. I think I mentioned in the first episode of this series that Job and Ecclesiastes are comparable in the sense that they both provide the other side of the coin, as it were, to the wisdom literature found in Proverbs. Job says here that he wishes he had never been born, or if born, then he wishes that he had been stillborn. The wise teacher in Ecclesiastes says something very similar. In Ecclesiastes 6, 3-5, we read, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. The teacher there says that if you aren't going to be happy in life, if your life is going to be, you know, end in disaster, then why be born at all? Why not just die at birth? Why does God allow people to be born into terrible circumstances? That's the question that Job is asking here. Listen to verse 12 and following. Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I, I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Now let's just pause here and notice some of what Job believes about death and the life hereafter. Scholars debate back and forth as to how much knowledge there was in the Old Covenant community about life after death. Obviously, they didn't know as much as we know on the other side of the empty tomb and the completed New Testament, but just as obviously, the seed of faith and understanding was clearly present, however vague and undefined. Job is talking about these things here. He expects death to be the end of his trial, and he expects it to be a great leveler. It will be the end of all striving and ambition, all poverty and all privilege. It will be the place, Job expects, where the dead will wait to stand before God for final judgment. Francis Anderson says very helpfully here, in spite of the vagueness with which the living conditions of Sheol are described, the continuation of conscious personal existence and identity after death is clearly believed. 
So Job is asking, if my life was going to be this bad, why didn't God allow me to die at birth? He carries on with that theme in verse 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death when it comes not and dig for it more than for hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden whom God has hedged in? Verse 23 brings Job's question to an end. He's been asking here, why does God create people who are destined for brutal and inhumane suffering? He says the lives of some people are so bad that death comes as a relief. They're glad when they slide out of this world and into the next. So if that's the case, then is it really wise and good for God to even create such people in the first place? That's a difficult question. And that's a dangerous question. C.S. Lewis acknowledged the question, but refused to address it in the problem of pain. He said, that is a question I have already declined. Since I believe God to be good, I am sure that if the question has a meaning, the answer must be yes. But I doubt whether the question has any meaning. And even if it has, I am sure that the answer cannot be attained by the sort of value judgment which men can significantly make, closed quote. C.S. Lewis is saying there that people are not in a position to answer questions like that. Most of us can't see any further than our nose, and, and there's so much going on in the universe that we are completely oblivious to, and our own definitions of good and bad, kind and unkind, are so terribly distorted by self-interest and self-idolatry that we simply cannot even begin to unpack that question, let alone provide a satisfactory answer to it. That sort of query is above our pay grade, which, of course, is confirmed by what God says and doesn't say when he shows up at the end. It's just not a useful question, given how little information we have to deal with. But again, Job is processing his pain out loud, so we don't expect rational and measured philosophy from people escaping out of a fire. We expect screaming and yelling and rolling around on the ground. And I think that's basically what we're seeing here. Verse 24. For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. My worst nightmare has come upon me, Job says. I am undone, upended, and overwhelmed. I am defeated and destroyed, and yet it's never over. One commentator offers this translation. I cannot relax, and I cannot settle, and I cannot rest, and agitation keeps coming back. This is a man in horrible, unthinkable pain. He is throwing words into the wind. I don't think we are meant to pay them much mind. I think we are meant to hear them as the cries of a wounded animal. They tell us only of the hurt and the loss that has been experienced. If you ever hear words like this coming from someone you love, don't argue with them. Don't correct them. Probably don't even remember them. Just Hear them out. Give them space. 
and wait for the waters to calm. In such circumstances, a wounded person's first words are rarely their best words. So listen, let most of it go. And then when things settle a little bit, begin to slowly but surely point them towards the God who knows them, who loves them, and gave himself for them. That, of course, is much easier for us to do on the other side of the cross. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.